Hey friend, thanks so much for meeting me here at Frothy Monkey in beautiful downtown Franklin, Tennessee. It's a great place to get a good cup of joe and share together in some good conversation. Anyway, be looking at the menu. I know you're new here. Decide what you want. Text it to me. I'm going to go ahead and get in line and place our order. Hey, you're listening to Guat Rocks, God, the world, and other things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, always advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. Well, this actually is season five. I was incorrect on the last podcast. That was still in season four, but this is season five, episode 89. I was also incorrect about the episode. Last episode was actually episode 88. This is episode 89. The title, Chimp on a Chain. Subtitle, Love Hacked. The blackmailing of love and joy by the tragedy of bitter, hateful self-pity. In 1972, I was a seventh grader at Euless Junior High. Euless Junior High sits on Airport Freeway in Euless, Texas. The side street on Euless Junior High is called Himes Drive. The claim to fame of Himes Drive is that in 1972, on the curve of that road, if you look it up on Google Map, you'll see that it has a major curve, that on the curve of that road, one of the houses on the outside of the curve were owners of a chimpanzee. (laughs) It's funny when I say it now. They were the owners of a true chimpanzee. I'm talking like a chimp, okay, a chimp. And... The people would take the chimpanzee and they would chain it to the tree in the front yard. There was no grass in the front yard. It was this fruitless mulberry tree, which is an anathema in Texas. It's a terrible, fast-growing shade tree that people plant. But chained to the tree was an actual chimpanzee. And it would stay out all day long and play in the front yard. (laughs) Can you imagine going down the street now and finding someone with a chimpanzee? I'm sorry, I'm really laughing uh, now that I'm saying this. It's funny. Uh, the story I'm about to tell you is not funny, but that chimpanzee uh, chained to that tree was amazing. And the children played with it. I think the story goes that the city of Eulis finally said that you can't have a chimpanzee at your house, and they had to get rid of it. Of course, the side note is I always wondered where on earth would you get a chimpanzee? But the story I'm about to share with you is not a funny story. My mind moved from that concept of that chimp on that chain to a story that's a part of the book, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis, of course, you may remember, is a famous British novelist, devout Christian. But The Great Divorce was written by Lewis, published in 1945, and it was based on a theological dream vision of his in which he reflects on the Christian conceptions of heaven and hell. And the primary themes of the great divorce are moral choice and the absolute disunion of heaven and hell. But in chapters 12 and 13, and this is one of the last set of characters that he deals with, starting in chapter 12, the character Sarah Smith, a beautiful, lovely spirit, reunites with a man named Frank, whom she once knew and loved in life. In other words, life when she was on earth before going to heaven. In their encounter in the valley between heaven and hell, as Lewis presents it, Sarah tries to convince Frank to join her in heaven. Frank has come up from, as Lewis describes hell, as that grim and joyless city, the gray town. 
and Sarah has come down from the foothills of heaven. In life, Frank would take advantage of her love by pretending that she'd hurt his feelings. As the discourse unfolds, Sarah reveals that Frank has a long history since childhood of pretending to be sad in order to make other people feel guilty. In the afterlife, Frank appears as two different ghosts, a small one and a tall one. Lewis calls the small one the dwarf and the tall one the tragedian. The narrator of the story, at the appearance of Frank, reports, I realized then that they were one person, or rather that both were the remains of what had once been a person. The great tall ghost is described as horribly thin and shaky, and, as Lewis said, seemed to be leading on a chain, another ghost no bigger than an organ grinder's monkey. The taller ghost wore a soft black hat, and he reminded the narrator of something that his memory could not recover from. A little later, the narrator noticed that the little ghost was not being led by the big one. It was the dwarfish figure that held the chain in its hand and the theatrical figure wore the collar around its neck. Sarah addresses her comments to the little ghost. She perceived him to be the one she had once known. Sarah, now infused with the love of heaven, stoops down without reservation to kiss the little ugly ghost who is pictured as that cold, damp, shrunken thing. The dwarf represents Frank's inner life, his bitterness, self-hatred, and his manipulative tendencies. The tragedian, on the other hand, represents the image of pain and sadness that Frank tries to project in order to make other people feel guilty and is an overdramatic being who overreacts whenever Sarah does something even mildly offensive. The bitter, self-hating small ghost uses a heavy chain to control the tall ghost. As Sarah speaks to the small ghost to appeal to Frank that he doesn't have to hate himself anymore, that he's in a place of boundless love, the small ghost pulls the tall ghost's chain, and the tragedian tall ghost rages theatrically, accusing Sarah of having never loved him. At one point, Sarah pleads with Frank to let go of the chain and send it away. She refers to the tall ghost on the chain as that great ugly doll. In chapter 13, the narrator says, I do not know that I ever saw anything more terrible than the struggle of that dwarf ghost against joy. For he had almost been overcome somewhere incalculable ages ago. There must have been gleams of humor and reason in him. In that valley between heaven and hell, Frank accuses Sarah that she gives no concern about his existence in hell and his refusal to stay as a result of her driving him back to hell. Listen to Sarah's response. Dear, no one sends you back. Here is all joy. Everything bids you stay. But the dwarf was growing smaller even while she spoke. Yes, said the tragedian, on terms you might offer to a dog. I happen to have some self-respect left. I see that my going will make no difference to you. It is nothing to you that I go back to that cold and the gloom, the lonely, lonely streets. Don't, don't, Frank, said the lady. Don't let it talk like that but the dwarf was now so small that she had dropped on her knees to speak to it. The tragedian caught her words greedily as a dog catches a bone. Ah, you can't bear to hear it, he shouted with miserable triumph. That was always the way. You must be sheltered. Grim realities must be kept out of your sight. You who can be happy without me, forgetting me. You don't even want to hear of my sufferings. You say, don't. Don't tell you. Don't make you unhappy. Don't break in on your shelter, self-centered little heaven. And this is the reward? She stooped still lower to speak to the dwarf, which was now a figure no bigger than a kitten, hanging on the end of the chain with his feet off the ground. That wasn't why I said don't, she answered. 
I meant stop acting. It's no good. He is killing you. Let go of that chain, even now. Acting, screamed the tragedian. What do you mean? The dwarf was now so small that I could not distinguish him from the chain to which he was clinging. And now for the first time, I could not be certain whether the lady was addressing him or the tragedian. Quick, she said, there is still time. Stop it. Stop it at once. Stop what? Using pity, other people's pity, in the wrong way. We have all done it a bit on earth, you know. Pity was meant to be a spur that drives joy to help misery. But it can be used the wrong way round. It can be used for a kind of blackmailing. Those who choose misery can hold joy up to ransom by pity. You see, I know now, even as a child, you did it. Instead of saying you were sorry, you went and sulked in the attic. Because you knew the sooner or later one of your sisters would say, I can't bear to think of him sitting up there alone crying. You used their pity to blackmail them, and they gave in in the end. And afterwards, when we were married, oh, it doesn't matter if you only stop it. And that, said the tragedian, that is all you have understood of me after all these years. I don't know what had become of the dwarf ghost by now. Perhaps it was climbing up the chain like an insect. Perhaps it was somehow absorbed into the chain. No, Frank, not here, said the lady. Listen to reason. Did you think joy was created to live always under that threat? Always defenseless against those who would rather be miserable than have their self-will crossed? For it was real misery. I know that now. You made yourself really wretched. That you can still do. But you can no longer communicate your wretchedness. Everything becomes more and more itself. Here is joy that cannot be shaken. Our light can swallow up your darkness, but your darkness cannot now infect our light. No, no, no. Come to us. We will not go to you. Can you really have thought that love and joy would always be at the mercy of frowns and sighs? Did you not know that they were stronger than their opposites? Love, how can you dare use that sacred word, said the tragedian. At the same moment, he gathered up the chain, which now for some time had been swinging uselessly at his side and somehow disposed of it. I am not quite sure, but I think he swallowed it. Then for the first time, it became clear that the lady saw and addressed him only. Where is Frank, she said, and who are you, sir? I never knew you. Perhaps you had better leave me, or stay if you prefer. If it would help you, and if it were possible, I would go down with you into hell. But you cannot bring hell into me. You do not love me, said the tragedian in a thin, bat-like voice, and he was now very difficult to see. I cannot love a lie, said the lady. I cannot love the thing which is not. I am in love, and out of it I will not go. There was no answer. The tragedian had vanished. The lady was alone in that woodland place, and a brown bird went hopping past her, bending with its light feet the grasses I could not bend. Presently, the lady got up and began to walk away. The other bright spirits came forward to receive her singing as they came. The happy trinity is her home. Nothing can trouble her joy. She is the bird that evades every net the wild deer that leaps every pitfall. Frank's character is a complicated metaphor for the way humans use pity and self-loathing to manipulate other people. Those who choose misery can hold others up to ransom by pity. Without going into great deal, I can testify to you, friend, that I have ministered in many situations to where I have seen these type of people in action. What a terrible and hideous representation that seeks to highlight the manipulative, imprisoning, hateful, bitter, blackmailing attitude of self-pity and self-loathing. C.S. Lewis does a great job. 
and it seeks to destroy and desecrate the heavenly gift of joyous peace that comes when someone has been infused with the love of Christ. To use a modern term, self-pity and self-loathing are an attempt to hack love. Friend, I ask you, are you a blackmailer holding others ransom by your theatrical persona of victimization and pain? A pretender feigning sadness, grief, and pain in order to dominate and control circumstances and people? Do you project pain and sadness to make others feel guilty? Are you a performer of theatrical overdramatic outbursts at the least hint of offense by others? Are you both the victim and the victimizer as you play people for your control? Do you really think that love and joy, as C.S. Lewis says, will always be at the mercy of your frowns and sighs? Do you not know that they are stronger than your theatrics? If you can honestly access your life and see the connection to the lifestyle and behavior I just described, then you need to stop the act, repent of your attitudes and behavior, ask loved ones you have damaged to forgive you, and come into the light of love, the light of Jesus Christ. The real danger you are in is that you may have played the part so long that you can never come to a knowledge of the truth and be changed, to be saved. Are you so invested in self-pity that you will choose to continue to act offended, even when that means sacrificing your own soul? Mmm, pretty harsh words, huh? Can someone like you be saved? Friend, the answer is yes. God is not willing that any should perish, but come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. Am I saying that someone who manifests the character of the small and tall ghost is lost? Only you know for sure. But I think it is highly unlikely that someone really knows Jesus as Savior and Lord and then live their life consistently in this manner. Self-centered, self-willed are two descriptions that are in diametric opposition to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These lifestyle behaviors are antichrist in nature. Friend, if you have been victimized by the drama of a self-centered, manipulative, bitter, self-pitied, self-loathing person, I want to encourage you, you do not have to allow your pity to be blackmailed any longer. At times, it may be morally wrong to give someone your pity. We may think that pity is an important component of love that shows we are a good person, but at times, it actually may strengthen people in their misery instead of helping them find happiness. The joy was not created to live always under that threat, always defenseless against those who would rather be miserable than have their self-will crossed. We have to listen to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and not cast the pearls of love before the swine of bitterness, sadness, manipulation, and malcontent. In the light of the love of Christ, joy cannot be shaken. And with that, dear friend, I bid you peace.